I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated myself. I see a great nation upon a great continent, blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ratified. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Folks, it's a pleasure to be back in the studio bringing you your live B2B radio show on the intersection of business and policy. I am very much looking forward to today's episode. I apologize for the delay. Uh, This was supposed to come out on Tuesday, but alas... I was sick. <laughs> There's not much you can do about that. And you might hear <clears throat> some remnants of uh, some coffiness, some phlegminess. Uh, let's hope that doesn't detract from the content very much. But folks, yeah, we're we're back. We're going to be on a stricter schedule here moving forward through 2020. I'm looking forward to all the content we have lined up for Ratified. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm officially spearheading our original audio shows now here at MarketScale, uh, or I'm at least overseeing content direction. So I'm excited for what that means for Ratified. I think that means more time for Ratified, more research capabilities, maybe even more guests per episode. Who knows? We're going out on a limb here. It's going to keep growing. Please feel free to subscribe to MarketScale Radio on Spotify and iTunes. That's where you'll find this show along with our other original audio content. Also follow me on Twitter at VoiceOfB2B. And we're also making our content uh, easier for you to find. When you subscribe to the MarketScale Radio channel, you might say, wow, there are a lot of shows on here. What if I just want to listen to Ratified? Well, guess what? We're going to start making some MarketScale Spotify playlists with our different shows, uh, potentially some bonus content on there as well. So stay tuned for that. We'll populate them on our website and on our social medias. All right, folks, today's episode of Ratified takes the intersection of business and policy to a storied feud between the Supreme Court and Hollywood. We're taking a detailed look at the 1948 Paramount decision and why the Trump administration's DOJ is wanting to reverse it. So to get some context before we talk to our guests, let's get to our preamble. All right, so almost 75 years ago, working in the cinema and film business and industry looked quite different than it does today. Whether you were an actor, a writer, a director, an editor, an exhibitor, whatever, you most likely worked under contract for the same company. Uh, You know, not just one company, but companies were incredibly vertically integrated. So no matter what role you had, uh, you and your cohorts were probably all under contract from a similar company. And in Hollywood's golden age, Hollywood was basically completely vertically integrated. Major distributors like MGM, Universal, 20th Century Fox, they owned every piece of the theater and movie experience. That kind of integration meant professionals across the spectrum were under contract from the same entity, like I said, uh, and a reality that led to anti-competitive practices among an oligopoly of studios, and there were definitely some horizontal conspiracies for increased profits and safety from market competition. Some of the most common anti-competitive practices we saw during that time included block booking, which forced independent theaters to screen one studio's entire slate of films, blind buying, which is where theaters had to show studio films without pre-screening, and circuit dealing, which is where studios licensed films to theaters under common ownership instead of in a theater-by-theater basis, which is actually an antitrust precedent that was used rather recently against AMC in 2013, so uh, the precedents continue on. After an initial suit in 1938, uh, by 1948, we saw the end of such scaled vertical integration for the film industry, with a 7-to-1 Supreme Court decision ruling that film studios could no longer legally own their own theaters. And this breakup led to a boom in independent film and foreign film, art house media, and eventually paved the way for the current winning blockbuster model that we see today, where studios mostly make their money from giant IP and, uh, you know, those Michael Bay action flicks. Gotta love them. 
So, the Paramount decrees are still referenced today, and the dynamics of the industry still favor independent cinemas and creators to some degree, though as of recently, it's been in decreasing fashion. So, why is the DOJ arguing that it's time to terminate the decrees? What has changed? Well, after reviewing hundreds of old consent decrees, the antitrust division of the DOJ introduced a motion in November calling for an end to these more than 1,300 legacy decrees because, essentially, they're saying they're no longer applicable. Uh, the DOJ argues that a total shift in the media consumption landscape has pushed content and subsequently uh, big studios online, which means that we need, according to the Assistant Attorney General, quote, consumer-friendly innovation. The motion says that uh, the decrees, quote, no longer promote or protect competition and innovation in the industry, and their, quote, continued existence may actually harm American consumers by standing in the way of innovative business models, end quote. Of course, there was immediate pushback, specifically from independent exhibitors. The ICA, or Independent Cinema Alliance, filed an amicus brief in January of this year challenging the DOJ's assessment on those decrees. And the ICA cites uh, the authentic ecosystem of independent films flowing through independent exhibitors that really creates the diverse content that we see today, and how underserved and rural communities really only get access to the silver screen through often small exhibitors. The ICA say that if large studios, from Disney to Universal to even Amazon, either entered the market or bought up small cinemas, that diverse content would be threatened. So, independent cinemas, they say, means more diverse content in more diverse places, typically for less money, and distributed more thoughtfully and creatively. So with an industry already hostile to small exhibitors in some capacity, the ICA sees this potential change as potentially a final nail in the coffin. So what would this look like in practice? Is it likely to happen? And how would studios, creatives, and exhibitors, big and small, streamers even, and consumers be affected by this potential change? That's what we're hoping to answer on today's episode of Ratified. And that's your preamble for you. Okay, jumping into today's interviews. I'm going to be referring to this potential reversal and restructure as vertical reintegration. It's a, a term I'm trying to coin a little bit, but that's what it feels like to me, and that's what we're going to be referencing it as. So to analyze what this vertical reintegration could mean for all sides of the industry, we're speaking with two cinema studies experts. Later in the show, we're speaking with Tom Noonan. He's a TV and film veteran. And beyond his academic work at UCLA, crafting the institution's first MFA in television, Tom has a storied career in TV and film management. He was an executive producing uh, an Oscar award-winning film, and he has headed leadership roles at ABC, Fox Network, and NBC Universal. And he's also lived through television's own version of that kind of vertical integration. So he's going to give the network perspective on the situation and break down where streaming fits into the future of content consumption, uh, as well as showcase how big studios might change their business model if Paramount was reversed. But first, we're going to be chatting and getting some historical context from Dr. John Connor, an associate professor of cinematic arts and director of graduate studies for cinema and media studies at the University of Southern California. And Professor Connor is going to break down the different economic structures in the film and media industry, the specific arguments of the DOJ and its detractors, and where independent media's home is moving forward. So we'll be right back in one second with Dr. John Connor. All right, we're on the line with Dr. John Connor, like in The Terminator, Associate Professor of Cinematic Arts, Director of Graduate Studies for the Division of Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Southern California. Dr. John Connor, how you doing today? Hello. Hey, it's a pleasure. I'm good. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts uh, on the show today, and I appreciate your insights. Uh, let's start with some context around the Paramount decrees in more detail. So, could you give the audience a summary of some of the most important legacy antitrust orders that were among um, 
the 1300 in that decision? You know, what were the standout ones that really changed the dynamics of the industry? Sure. So when the uh, studios were put, so in 1938, the studios were basically put on notice by the Department of Justice. It was part of, of an aggressive, you know, sort of economy-wide push by uh, Roosevelt's Department of Justice to really try to find ways to, uh, you know, in this new industrial world, keep competition alive. They were told in no uncertain terms that if they didn't shape up uh, and stop explicitly colluding, that things would get worse for them. And uh, they said, we promise we won't. Uh, And the Department of Justice revisited those promises in the middle of the war. And they said, you know, you guys actually didn't change things meaningfully. And so they refiled the lawsuit. So basically throughout World War II, the studios knew that they had to behave in different ways. You've mentioned block booking. You've mentioned blind bidding. Both of those were crucial. And they desperately tried to avoid changing their behavior. So after the war, uh, there were a number of uh, criminal cases and other sorts of private actions that were being brought against uh, the studios outside the government's purview. That is to say, there were uh, civil suits about um, the restraint of competition and so on, and things were really moving against the studios pretty decisively. Uh, there's a, an important case uh, against RKO that ha- that comes to a head around that time. And so the studios eventually all realized that the writing is on the wall and that they had better sign the best agreement that they can get, that the delay and denial approach and fighting it tooth and nail is likely not going to work. All of them realize this except Paramount, which ends up being the last one sort of standing and therefore uh, ends up being the, the one who gets made the, the biggest example of. Um, the guts of those decisions are fairly similar, even though they are all different depending on exactly when the studio, each studio sort of knuckled under uh, and agreed to these limits on their trade. And what the basic model was, was if you were an integrated, a vertically integrated company of the big five, the ones who had production distribution and a theater chain. Mm -hmm. So that would have been Paramount and MGM and Warner and RKO um, and Fox. You could keep two of the three. You could keep either production and distribution or distribution and exhibition, but you couldn't keep all three. And all of the studios decided to keep production and distribution together and spin off their theater chains. Um, If you only had a production distribution arm like Universal, Columbia, or United Artists, there were a set of slightly different rules that applied to you uh, in those cases. And so the studios, uh, those studios were governed by a slightly different set of rules. All of that stuff is eventually worked out in detail. Uh, and by 1948, pretty much all of the rules are in place. But even then, the studios drag their feet. Uh, and so it isn't until, I believe, 1954 that MGM finally finishes what was called the process of divorcement. Hmm. Um, this is an industry that really liked the way it was set up yeah, in the thirties yeah. and forties. And, uh, for very good reason. Uh, and, uh, so they, they held off as long as they could. Um, the main pieces of those decrees are the fairly obvious ones that you can't cross own, but there were also sort of little nibbly things at the sides that these days don't seem like, see changes in you know the way you understand entertainment but which were decisive for their business practices one of those that i like to uh, highlight when i'm teaching this is the end on block booking for shorts it used to be that when you went to a an evening at the movies not only were there often double features but there were almost always shorts that were programmed by the studios if you watch tcm these days they'll often have anthologies of these travel logs and other shorts and the way that that worked for the studios was that they would just say to you, if you wanted this part of the slate, you needed to take this many short subjects with it. And those were generally produced for less money, uh, and they were generally you know, designed to be enjoyable behind-the-scenes views or travelogues or things like that. Well, once the, uh, w- once the Paramount decrees go into effect and you can't block book those shorts, there's really no market uh, for those shorts. And so only a few of the shorts making companies survive after that. 
Uh, they survive in a very sort of catch-as-catch-can way. Yes, there are still three stooges being made, but right. a lot of the other stuff sort of vanishes around that time. Um, well, for the studios, the reason they loved the shorts wasn't just that they made a little money off it, but for them it was a farm team. They could really you know, test out actors, test out writers, test out technical people in them. Uh, and now they didn't have really that same level of, you know, uh, 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 that, that same sort of market segmentation that allowed them to uh, try things out cheaply and then still have a guaranteed, uh, you know, uh, exhibition stream for that. Right. So all that stuff sort of happens in the 40s. Um, but of course, by the 19, you know, whatever, by the 60s, the world is different. Television is the dominant entertainment form. By the 80s, things are wildly different with, uh, you know, dramatic shifts in home entertainment uh, through VCRs. And now, of course, through streaming. So the arguments that get made are that uh, the, well, I mean, the DOJ's basic argument is that those decrees cover companies that don't exist, many of them. And for all of the ones that do exist, uh, they don't live in anything like that same media ecosystem anymore. Uh, and so they won't try to do any of the stuff that they used to do back in the days that nobody is going to start shorts form company and nobody is going to try to block book an entire season's worth of movies. They just don't make a whole season's worth of movies. Um, and you know, they don't make anywhere near as many movies as they used to. So uh, they're basically saying it's all good old fashioned stuff that we don't need to regulate anymore because nobody does it. Interesting. Are there any uh, specific um, yeah. uh, decrees that the DOJ's antitrust division is targeting as outdated? You know, I mean, obviously they're saying all 1,300 in some form or fashion could be uh, tweaked or completely um, overturned. But are there any specific ones that you think stand out? And uh, after you give us that little breakdown, do you agree with that assessment that these decrees are outdated. Sure. So the ones that they highlight when they list those decrees are the ones that effectively cover non-existent entities anymore. Almost all of the, well, I mean, while Hollywood is the most durable oligopoly in American culture, um, we have almost all the same studios today. We don't have RKO, we now don't have Fox, but everybody else is still around. Um, there are, uh, there are then entities that have vanished and for the DOJ, they're saying that it's unfair that say Paramount is subject to this decree when Disney, which didn't have a distribution arm at that point, wasn't a major studio. It was just, you know, a cartoon shop at that point, uh, isn't covered by the decrees. So it's just wildly unfair. And so they want to get rid of everything they regard as both totally out of date and that it covers an entity that doesn't exist, like a theater chain, and uh, they want to get rid of things that are they regard as differential, um, where it would cover one player and not another uh, for reasons that are not anything other than historically, you know, contingent. Uh, that Disney just wasn't a big player back then. The thirteen hundred agreements include a lot of other legacy antitrust uh, agreements that don't have sunset dates, but. The guts of that argument, from what I can tell, digging into the later elaborations of uh, of the Paramount decrees, what their meaningfulness is in relation to, say, television syndication and things like that, is you know, the, the DOJ is basically throwing its hands up and saying, there's just so much unnecessary bureaucracy here. It's a total mess. And it really is not. Uh, it's quite stable. The entertainment law community, which really comes into its own in this period, is very good uh, at what they do, and they have figured ways, obviously, to work profitably and sustainably in it. But most of these later decrees are sort of, um, you know, revisions along the lines of someone, some studio basically saying, well, there's nothing in the rules that say a dog can't play basketball. And then the DOJ coming along and saying, all right, fine, dogs can't play basketball. Like, they're just like, changing the bumpers on the edges of the bowling alley slightly to keep the, you know, keep everybody playing the same game. Right. Um, so really it's just that those core six or seven, uh, initial agreements that, uh, 
that when they're ripped out, it'll rip out all of the subsequent elaborations uh, over the last seven years. Mm. So then, in your you know uh, expert opinion, do you agree with that assessment that these decrees are no longer applicable? I, I don't. Um, I think that the this is a kind of a, a, a move we've seen regularly in the history of uh, sort of anti antitrust uh, legal thinking, and I think it's uh, particularly obvious why it doesn't apply in this case. The move in general is to say two things. On the one hand, uh, there's no way that uh, we could go back to the old collusive version of the studios that existed in the 30s and 40s. And so as a result, these things are unnecessary because um, nobody would try to behave in those ways today. But then the flip side, and this is where uh, you really see the kind of um, what's generally an antitrust called the post-Bork revolution in antitrust uh, is to say, well, but also that could be good. Uh, so no one would try it, but if they did try it, it might be good. Uh, particularly, they will make claims that vertical integration can be what in this term pro-consumer, um, that it can lower ticket prices, uh, that it can provide better options, that it can force theaters to upgrade. This is one of the claims that's going to be that's marshaled in the uh, DOJ response to the independent cinemas when they say there are lots of markets that aren't served except by small independent chains or by undercapitalized independent chains. The DOJ says, right, and if studios can force them to upgrade their equipment and their seating and their experience, that's pro-consumer. Uh, and so we should let them do that. Um, so it's that having it on both sides, uh, which is, a, you know, classically lawyerly uh, sort of arguing the contrary that I find dubious here. Um, what I, what always happens uh, is, and this is, this happens whether the market is, you know, office supplies or industrial finishes or entertainment products is that while the department of justice says it doesn't make any sense to try this, to even give it a shot again, somebody always does. Um, somebody always thinks, that there's some reason that they can get away with it, at least partially. Um, and the Department of Justice, you know, has has an answer for that argument, too. And uh, their answer is currently that if, uh, you know, if there's going to be a radical uh, reorientation of the business as a result of getting rid of these antitrust agreements, we can revisit that. And we can revisit it for two reasons. One, that they're still governed by the old Sherman Act, uh, which, sure, but if you get rid of all the precedents, you know, the Sherman Act doesn't do much. And two, uh, that there will be a two-year transition period uh, uh, to basically give everybody a chance to, like, radically reconsolidate the business. And that's what I expect uh, will happen if this goes into effect. Um, the wave of consolidations on the exhibition side, the wave of consolidations on the production distribution side, uh, that that will continue and gain tremendous speed, um, not only because of uh, secular forces that are driving consolidation under you know, the last whatever 30 years, uh, but also because of these industry-specific moves. Um, I don't think anyone in the industry currently believes that there's meaningful that there are meaningful checks on the kinds of consolidation that they might want to pursue. You know, this is, uh, you know, so when the, when the DOJ says that any distributor exhibitor mergers would necessarily be reviewed and, and they would be reviewed. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that they wouldn't come out the other side just fine. I mean, these are the folks who approved the Warner brothers, AT&T merger, the Disney Fox merger, the NBC Comcast universal merger. Like there's no reason to believe that there's any meaningful constraint on mega mergers in the media industries with the exceptions of these small spinoffs, like we saw with the Disney Fox merger, or, uh, things like that. So, um, in that calculus, I don't think there's any reason to believe that independent exhibitors uh, and other kinds of independent forces in this field will be anything other than collateral damage, mm. you know, going forward. Yeah, I, I want to break down some of the um, 
economic structures that we see today in the industry and then use that as a bouncing off point to how that might change. So uh, after deintegration in the 40s and, you know, we've basically now been in 75 years worth of industry dynamics underlying the current situation we're in for the industry, that includes uh, a current race to streaming, um, the kind of blockbuster film model that we do see rake in big money for studios. Uh, what is the dynamic that exists today between studios, their creative talent, exhibitors, and other um, you know larger players in that ecosystem? How do they interact economically and structurally? And where is most of the power consolidated today? And, and I guess where, where do you see some of those... Um, powerful players butt heads or, you know, where are they already at odds in our current system? Sure. So the, the big opposition in a world where studios are, even the ones who are not subject to Paramount decrees, where studios negotiate movie by movie, theater by theater, is between studios who can sort of keep the hammer, you know, under wraps for a while uh, and say, if you want although not in a fully block-booked way, if you want the next Avengers movie, you'd better take the next, you know, whatever mid-market Disney cartoon uh, that might be there. Um, and in response to that, even though circuit dealing is generally not allowable, uh, there's been massive consolidation on the theater side as well. So at the very top, these players are uh, are similarly scaled. Um they have a kind of reasonable entente. Uh, there is a fair fight there. But um, there's an enormous amount of what sort of stuff that falls through the cracks uh, and that is handled by really dynamic, innovative, independent exhibitors and really dynamic, innovative producer-distributor combinations. The whole nexus of basically small to small mid-size festival movies, whether those are produced domestically or internationally, uh, finding their way into first large markets and then into mid-size urban markets, all of that structure is, they feel, uh, insulated by these decrees, by the fact that, uh, that there can't be sort of total elimination of uh, independence. Uh, so it's not just the ICA that... Uh, opposed, you know, that filed comments opposing uh, the elimination of the decrees. It's also NATO, which is the big theater organization. It's not just the alliance uh, in Europe. Um, and there are a lot of very talented folks above and below the line, actors, writers, directors, but also crucial, you know, folks who are editing, doing production design, and so on, whose work is often a kind of alternation of one for them and one for me um, because they are much less likely as you highlighted to be under permanent contract to a particular studio. Uh, it's often very easy for them to work on when they're very good at it, a giant thing like a star Wars movie and then do something smaller in between. And that alternation uh, is exceptionally useful for a career. It helps to manage a career. It helps to keep you sane. Um, it also uh, helps to keep you, if you're a guild member, it helps to keep your insurance active and your guild membership active uh, and help you with retirement. And so there are really thousands and thousands of people who benefit from a system in which there are lots and lots of micro transactions or one-off transactions or independent transactions uh, underneath that. Uh, and they have a strong interest in keeping things, if not exactly as they are, because nobody imagines that things are going to stay exactly as they are, keeping them fairly similar. Um, and so you'll see increasingly, uh, as uh, you know, comments filed by the guilds in opposition to uh, this as well. Um, the other thing I would say is that while there are, there's been this sort of shakeout. Uh, at the top or this sort of reconsolidation around other kinds of exhibition formats, whether those are your phones at AT&T or uh, your cable company through Comcast. Um, the other thing we see is that there's, you know, there's a question about whether these new enormous streaming powers are going to play along like they are traditional studios or whether they are going to behave 
in wildly other ways. And the most important uh, aspect of that and the most important sort of signal in that case was that Netflix joined the Motion Picture Association. Um, you know, the MPA lost Fox when Disney bought it, uh, but, Disney, but Netflix has come along and is now keeping the oligopoly at, you know, a rough oligopoly number. Um, if there are only two movie studios, Disney and Netflix, then the MPA probably doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so that was very important. And the thing that uh, that was a signal of was that there is increasing agreement among the major studios, even that the relationship between the relationships between the actual exhibition and home exhibition in lots of different ways are something they share even with a streaming first company like Netflix. And in particular, I think the crucial convergence of interests there is in the attempt to be able to control what's called the window. Right now, uh, all theatrical movies that are being distributed through major theatrical chains have to basically be promised to those chains for a three-month period, although that window sometimes shortens. And what studios want, perhaps more than anything else right now, is control over how long movies stay in theaters. Some, they're happy to keep. If, if people you know, keep filling the theater for Parasite, even after it's out on Blu-ray, Neon is you know, thrilled. Uh, they, they, they love that. Um, if people keep going to the Avengers in the theater, Disney will be thrilled. But if a movie seems to them to be something that it's time to move it into a premium home streaming you know, tier so that you would pay you know, $25 to watch it at home instead of 15 to watch it in the theater, the, the, the studios want to be able to do that. And right now they are unable to uh, because of the sort of the limits of their power vis-a-vis the theaters. Taking away the antitrust rules for those studios, sort of ripping out the guardrails a little bit, will provide them with the chance to threaten those studios, or I'm sorry, threaten those exhibition chains a little bit more, a little bit more effectively, I think. Um, we saw, you know, we, we see this in the Netflix case, sort of in the negative, maybe more than in the positive, where Netflix, you know, didn't get a best picture for Roma, didn't get a best picture for Irishman, but did release those in theaters that they rented directly. And Netflix is going to buy, I'm convinced, a few dozen more theaters. Um, Disney has uh, the El Capitan, which is a kind of flagship fun theater for them, but they could easily get into the business of owning a few theaters that would allow them to better control uh, the release pattern of these movies. And I'm sure that the folks at AT&T who are you know, now mainly in the business of ramping up HBO production would love to be able to take a, say, an HBO premiere uh, episode put it in theaters for two weeks and then if that is what made sense and then put it on HBO. Um, and right now they can't do that uh, with major motion picture chains, you know, exhibition chains, but if they could threaten to get into the exhibition business more permanently in order to then get the contract provisions that they want, they'd be very happy. Um, so I expect not that there'll be a direct re-vertical integration, but a kind of bank shot that gets, that puts more power in the, you know, on the side of the studios and the distributors. Uh, and I think that's why even the independents and NATO are on the same side uh, opposing the elimination of these antitrust agreements. Real quick, if you could just sum up this last point in about two minutes or so, but um, do the arguments from the um, ICA, namely that small and independent exhibitors are essential to the diversity and access of film, uh, and this idea that vertical reintegration would squeeze them out of the industry. Do you think that that argument holds water in your opinion? And, uh, you know, what is the place of independent cinema in the future of this uh, ever-changing media consumption ecosystem? Yeah, I, I, I do. I tend to think that they're more right than they are wrong. Um, I think the best argument that gets made against it is that most places don't even have an innovative independent theater chain that's going to expose you to brand new, very cool movies that you're going to, you know, want to go see with your friends, what they're going to do is desperately try to get 
the Avengers because that's where they can make a lot of money through concessions. I think that's a pretty solid argument. But it is the case that there are hundreds of museums and nonprofits and small-scale sort of theater companies out there that really do try to generate public or quasi-public conversations around interesting movies, um, around uh, movies that deserve to be seen by audiences that are underserved. Uh, in over the course of the 70 years the decrees have been in place, that's included African-American audiences, uh, Latinx audiences, queer audiences, and those movie theaters were able to do a lot for those audiences in ways that the major studios and the major chains just generally did not. Uh, didn't They didn't see it as profitable. They didn't see it as their business model. So I tend to actually agree with the ICA a lot more. Um, than I used to, I think in part because I've gotten to know a lot more really interesting exhibitors uh, over time. It's still the case that you know Netflix and other streamers will have just far more choice uh, than these theaters offer. But what they don't offer really is that you know, essential public institutional uh, aspect of it, where it's you go see those things at your good movie theater. Um, to the extent that we can have more of that, I think that would be great. And I think that, you know, these provisions will actually make it much, much harder for those theaters to stay in business doing uh, the thing that they do. So even though the system's not really certainly imperfect now, um, I can't see it getting any better under these new rules. All right, Dr. John Connor, thank you so much for your insights. Again, Dr. John Connor is an associate professor of cinematic arts and Director of Graduate Studies for the Division of Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Southern California. Really appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to picking your brain on this subject more if there are any uh, other developments. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we'll be right back with Tom Noonan. Give us a few seconds. Right, folks, for our second guest, we are chatting with Tom Noonan. Tom has a storied background here, so I'm just going to run through the highlights. He's a guest lecturer at UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. He's the founder of Bullseye Entertainment, a production company responsible for Best Picture winner Crash from 2006. He's one of six founding members of Fox Network, former president of NBC Universal, former head of movies for television at ABC, and recipient of the Humanitas and Peabody Awards. Tom Noonan, pleasure to have you on the call. How are you doing today? I'm great, Daniel. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you again for calling in. Looking forward to picking your brain on all of this. We just wrapped up with... Dr. Connor, he gave us a great um, historical context for uh, the initial decrees and uh, you know broke down some of these structural dynamics that exist in the industry today and uh, how those could change moving forward. So I'm looking to get your kind of expert high level executive um, perspective on all of this. And Tom, I think a great place to start is to draw some comparisons to a very similar kind of vertical integration that we saw in the television industry. And I think this could help, you know, point to how vertical reintegration in cinema might look, or at least showcase, you know, what a uh, consolidation of um, power at this you know, in these industries might look like. So your time at NBC Studios started in 1994, and that was right after financial interest and syndication rules in TV, uh, or shorthand FinCEN rules, were lifted for television in 1993. And for those who don't know, FinCEN rules in television prevented uh, big TV networks from owning and taking in syndication profits from Hollywood-produced primetime shows. So 
those rules were lifted, and we saw uh, in TV a kind of vertical integration that we hadn't seen before, and you were heading up a studio at that time. So if you could uh, recount what that vertical integration looked like in the television industry, especially in a position of leadership, you know, who benefited, who suffered, and where do we see uh, the repercussions of that change today? Well, the, the term vertical integration really uh, rose out of that period in time where uh, the FinCEN rules, as you uh, refer to them, were lifted. For the first time, um, studios were allowed to be owned and operated by networks. And uh, more importantly, networks were allowed to air as much as, I think it was 80 to 85% of their programming could be owned by them, by their home studio. So when I was recruited to run NBC Studios, uh, which is now known as NBC Universal, the, the company only had one show that they owned on the on their 22 hours of air at the time and that was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, NBC Studios produced that show. Within two years, we went from having one show on the air that we owned to having over 70% of the schedule owned by NBC. Um, and we were aiming to be what NBC represented at the time, which was called must-see TV. This was a, in a, a really gigantically successful era for NBC where shows like Friends were on the air and ER, um, both number one in their uh, in their categories, Friends and Comedy, uh, ER and Drama. And But both of those shows, you might recall, were, were produced by Warner Brothers and owned by Warner Brothers. So our mandate was to do shows that were of that same quality as Warner's, if not better. And we did. We developed shows like Will and Grace and Providence and uh, The Pretender and, and Profiler and many other uh, comedies and dramas that not only were really successful for NBC, uh, were groundbreaking content, but they also were uh, award-winning. The effect of this was that suddenly uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of smaller production companies went out of business because the networks no longer needed to transact with these smaller companies to provide programming when they could do it, frankly, almost all of it in-house. And so if you had to draw some comparisons uh, between what you saw in the uh, vertical integration of the television industry versus what could potentially happen for the film industry, what are some of those similarities that you see in the current situation that's unfolding? Well, the, the big difference is the exhibition of motion pictures is, is becoming extremely narrow cast to, towards very specific kind of event movies and sequels. Mm. So we're seeing, um, I don't have the, the, the figures right in front of me here, but we're seeing giant spectacles based on comic books or existing intellectual property or IP dominating the top 10 or top 20 box office performers along with the sequels of those same uh, franchises. And the exhibitor groups, the theater groups responsible for... Uh, for exhibiting these films are are collected in a, in a pretty small uh, category of exhibitors uh, that, that have a giant footprint across North America, uh, AMC and Cinemark in particular. And they really run the table, uh, these exhibitors, uh, for what movies get shown, how long they're in theaters, and what priority they're given. And as, you, as you're aware... The, the splits are pretty um, pretty hardcore. So, for example, if you're the Walt Disney Company and you have a movie like Avengers Endgame out and you've spent $250 million on the budget of the movie, maybe another $200 million on the marketing of the movie, so you're 450 in, 
then you have to split the box office with the exhibitor. And that so that makes it really prohibitive for studios to take big swings or big risks on character-driven content, smaller movies, non-franchise movies, because these bets on production and marketing are so big and the exhibitors get so much out of the uh, business deal. So this notion that uh, that the Paramount um, uh, lawsuit or the, the Paramount decision from 1948 that could... Um, now allow studios to have their own exhibitions, their own theaters, I think in a weird way would almost do the opposite of what the financial syndication rules being left to did for television. In other words, I actually think that there's a world where there would be, there would, more cinemas might open that are playing exclusively Disney, Universal, Sony, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox movies, etc., or they might get, or AMC, Cinemark, and these other chains might get acquired, or 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 become partnerships with uh, with one or more of these studio cha- studio uh, uh, suppliers. But I actually think it might vitalize the um, the cinema experience, where right now uh, only spectacular films, only big budget giant franchise movies, really perform at the box office. And um, and those exhibitors are, are, are really controlling uh, how long a movie stays at the box office and what placement it gets, uh, how, how long a movie stays at, in theaters and what placement it gets inside the theater. Is it getting its premium theater? Is it getting a smaller screen? Where is it playing exactly? I actually think it's going to create more competition, not less, when it comes to theaters. So your argument is that basically because the uh, consolidation in the market would basically lead to uh, studios maybe opening up their own theaters. Therefore, uh, you know, if they don't eat up AMCs and Cinemarks or, uh, you know, if they don't eat up or push out small independent theaters, that those theaters would now have less of a, um, a pressure to play those giant pictures and push out other smaller, maybe art house uh, or just less blockbuster-esque films. If that's the case, do consumer viewing trends indicate that that's what people want to see? Would Do you think that these smaller cinemas would be profitable if they didn't have Star Wars showing every two years? Um, you know, it, even if it did open the door for other films that aren't Disney owned, basically to, to push through uh, at, at the exhibition level, would it actually keep those cinemas afloat? When you say those cinemas, are you saying more the art house cinemas? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I guess even even your Cinemarks and AMCs, which I know are two totally different tiers, but if those don't get eaten up by... Um, the studios, and they are basically just competition and now a, a more crowded exhibition market, um, you know, do they retain power in any considerable way? And is there um, interest from the viewing audience to keep them afloat if they're not showcasing the big blockbusters? In my view, um, it- AMC and Cinemark will most likely either get acquired by one of these uh, big studios or they'll go into a partnership business with uh, a handful of these studios, conceivably. Uh, I I think what AMC and Cinemark have going for them is brick and mortar. They've got these these cinemas are already built. They're they're already updated. They've got the state of the art sound and and um, and seating uh, and and uh, concessions. And so, I don't think this is going to harm AMC or Cinemark in the short term. And I think, like like I said, I think they're likely targets either for acquisition or partnership. I don't think we'll see a revolution in build the building of new cinemas that, that are are exclusively showing. Paramount, Sony, you know, Disney, 
Universal, Warner Brothers films, et cetera, for years to come. It would take, it would, there'd be a, like a five to 10 year runway just for those movie houses to start popping up, you know? So I, I think in the short term, AMC and Cinemark will probably benefit from this because they'll have one studio after another climbing all over each other, trying to get into business with them, either exclusively or in partnership, if not on an acquisition basis. So I think they're sitting pretty uh, right now. Five, ten years from now, who knows? But at the moment, they, they're they the only game in town. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that dynamic uh, is is interesting. You know, when I was speaking to Dr. Connor, his thoughts were that basically these um, these studios really don't have much of an incentive to get into the exhibition business in the first place because of the growth of streaming and home theaters and how people consume content nowadays. And that really this kind of vertical reintegration wouldn't really even get to vertical reintegration and instead would be more of a um a bargaining chip to uh decrease windowing times and uh to basically put more pressure on exhibitors to showcase more of these studios movies just without them jumping on the bit and uh actually de- dealing with what it would take to manage you know thousands of facilities across the nation do you agree well, I, do, do, you know, do you think no that question, might happen well there's no question in my mind that that we're all consuming content differently um than we did even five years ago and the it, it's been a confluence of a number of, of factors most likely mostly what you mentioned streaming and the advent of streaming and getting to binge watch shows uh, the delight of doing that as a consumer um, was, you know, sort of immeasurable when, when Netflix did that with house of cards originally and, and the other streamers kind of followed. And in some cases, even premium cable and basic cable have followed on, on select cases of offering all seasons on a binge worthy basis. But, um, and, and as you pointed out, home theater systems have, have become, amazing sublime experiences and investments for consumers uh, nationwide that combined with the fact that it's become really really expensive to go to the movies these days and people look hard at a $15 admission ticket and say wow that's a couple of months of streaming for me with Disney Plus or HBO Max or Amazon you know and I'm doing this for one title like seriously you know yeah. So uh, I think it's pricing as much as just a, an incredibly enhanced experience uh, at home. Setting all that aside, I, I think that people have been uh, crying out about the death of cinema really since the advent of television in the 1940s and 50s when it really came into a peak use originally um, over broadcast. People kept saying like boy the you know why would people go out to the movies when they can watch great content at home and and we've seen movie attendance ebb and flow but for the most part over time it's been pretty pretty steady um there's been on an aggregate a a a diminished portion of people going as it pertains to the actual population of the united states but Broadly speaking, the cinema business is still a robust business. I don't think it's going away. Um, And I I do think people really do enjoy going out to the movies, even if the average American only goes three times a year, Mm. Uh, which is shocking to me because I go as many times as three times a week. (laughs) Right, right. But but setting all that aside, I... I don't think that the barrier to entry for studios owning exhibition chains will be the management of those chains. I think that, like we were mentioning a few moments ago, they'll probably just end up acquiring or going into partnership with the existing chains. Um, but over time, I, I do I do foresee 
really specific movie houses being built that are exclusively showing Paramount, Universal, Disney. And there may even be movie houses that are built just for Marvel films or just for Pixar films that, you know, uh, along those lines, depending on the appetite and the success of these chains and these experiences uh, that that the studios imagine. Hmm. So how do you imagine a successful but, but relatively smaller production company? So, you know, let's say A24 or um, Annapurna, you know, how do you think they would fit into an ecosystem where, you know, it's incentivized uh, larger studios to also get into the exhibition business? Um, how would they continue to be profitable but also consistent uh, in their artistic values and message right in today's um ecosystem and do you think their place would change if the industry was vertically reintegrated in this way well a24 annapurna neon who just recently had the best picture best international feature uh yep uh parasite out um all of these are smaller scale character driven um production houses and to right. a certain extent distribution uh, chains. And I I think that what we're, we're going to see with those kinds of companies is that they're going to be directing more of their resources and, and spending more of their time developing content that will be episodic and, and seen more on streaming channels and premium cable um, because there's really no... There's no artistic reason to see those those movies necessarily or those characters or those situations on the big screen. Um, there's very little difference between what you'd experience watching Parasite on the big screen versus watching it on your home entertainment system. Uh, you miss the communal experience of you know an audience being shocked by the various. Uh, plot turns and twists, but beyond that communal experience, visually, you're probably going to have the same level of artistic immersion that you would have at home. Um, So I suspect those companies are going to be aiming more and more towards streaming relationships, premium cable relationships, because their, their content is not being viewed as necessarily cinematic in nature. Um, setting that aside for a minute, if they do insist on see, on having their things seen in theaters the way many uh, of the premium Netflix uh, filmmaker relationships, whether it was Martin Scorsese last year or Noah Baumbach, they'll, they'll release their those Netflix movies in theaters for a period of time before it's seen exclusively on their streaming service. And I suspect the same will be true for A24, Neon, uh, Annapurna, and others. Um, they may have to go into partnership with some of these companies for their movies to be seen in uh, in theaters. But I I, I don't think that they will go away uh, as a result of this decision being overturned because they're, they're really vital uh, houses for artistic content, and there's always going to be a place for that kind of experimental film in Hollywood. There's, uh, those, those voices always manage to be heard and seen. Those artists are, are seen by artists, by audiences all over the world. Um, even the big studios, even the most uh, disciplined studios like like the Disney company in particular, they understand that variety is the spice of life and that you need these new voices to, uh, to keep all of us stimulated, entertained, and illuminated. And if you look at the track record of the filmmakers, for example, that Marvel turns to for their franchises, routinely they go to the art house circuit for, uh, for filmmakers, whether it's Chloe Zhao uh, recently with The Eternals, or whether it's uh, Ryan Coogler with Black Panther, or uh, 
Taika Waititi, you know, who had just done Hunt for Wilder People when he did Thor, and of course is now the filmmaker behind Jojo Rabbit and the Oscar winner for that screenplay. So everyone appreciates that there needs to be uh, a place where artistic voices are nurtured and seen. Um, how that ultimately works out vis-a-vis exhibition, I think we, you and I are both, you know, still drawing that on the whiteboard right now. Mm. Uh, I think it's, it's really TBA, but I actually think overall in the exhibition scheme of things, the exhibition business could stand to be re-examined, re-evaluated, and reinvested by the big studios because in a way, the exhibition business is really in a chokehold right now with two big players, AMC and Cinemark, and they could stand to have some competition, in my opinion. All right, Tom Noonan, that does it for our conversation today. I have so many other questions I want to run by you. Maybe we'll just have to do a follow-up episode here if there are any uh, further developments. But I appreciate your time on Ratified. Again, we've been chatting with Tom Noonan, founder of Bullseye Entertainment, former president of NBC Universal, former head of movies for television at NBC, and a guest lecturer at UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television. Tom, appreciate your time. My pleasure. All right, folks, that makes two solid interviews, Dr. John Connor and Tom Noonan. And, of course, we have to wrap up with quick five minutes on a bear brief with John Bear in the studio. Again, John Bear is our resident uh, policy research analyst, I guess. I don't know. I pulled that one right out of my butt. That is <laughs> – enjoy that new title. But, yeah, John is um, – my helping hand here on Ratified, and he likes to give his commentary on these great uh, interviews that we do with our guests. So, John, welcome to the studio. How you doing? Thanks, Daniel. Um, you know, I can be whatever you need me to be. <laughs> oh. I appreciate the glowing endorsement, and honestly, we had two fantastic interviews here today. Can I just take a side note? Can we talk about how there is no coincidence that Dr. John Connor yeah, John wound Connor. up studying <laughs> film and cinema. That is incredible. Oh, I know. It's too good. Uh, well, his his website is, I think it's something like um, www.johnconnorliketheterminator.com. Oh. So it's... Dr. Connor, you are so cool. Thank you for coming on the show today. <laughs> it's so good. That is um, fantastic. All right, John, we don't really have much time, so I just want to briefly field your thoughts on all of this. But from what it feels like to me, uh, I, I hear both of uh, our guests' arguments. Um, my hot take is I envision that if something like this does pass, uh, basically independent cinema... or independent exhibitors aren't really going to have a place to thrive in the industry. And even if there is competition against Cinemark and AMC, I think it's going to be competition from an already considerably consolidated market. So it's really just kind of the the illusion of competition. And uh, like he mentioned, the Neons, the A24s of the world, you know, they might cut some deals in some cinemas, but they're main place of of nurturing independent art is going to be in some online streaming fashion which makes me very sad for the future of art house cinema because i i love my small little cinemas in the area my angelica theaters and even my alamo draft houses um so what are your thoughts yeah, you're telling me I love Alamo Drafthouse, but uh, neither here nor there. I mean, it really just goes back to Dr. Connor's point. I think he had the golden soundbite from this interview today that Hollywood is the most accepted oligarchy in American culture. I mean, that that's just phenomenal. I mean, because it really it hits the point right on the head. And if we want to talk about the Paramount decision and we want to talk about what this is going to do to small independent um, exhibitors of you know cinema, uh, without a doubt, I think that that is the most compelling point. Uh, you know, we have behemoths in the industry. Um, you know, we need to be taking a look at how we can stimulate competition. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, Tom Noonan makes an incredibly fair point that between the AMCs and the Cinemarks of the world, uh, you know, right now, uh, maybe there isn't that level of competition at that highest echelon. So absolutely. You know, can we flood the market with, you know, studios that have their own exhibition halls? Um, That would be a solution. 
Is it the solution? I think there are grander forces at play. To me, there are two elements to this. There's the studio side of it, which is if brick and mortar is failing on the whole for retailers, then how in the world are studios going to see a cost benefit analysis that's going to play out to I need to be able to right, to open up a, a thousand new yeah. theaters? Yeah, and right. l- let's even talk about one or two here. I, d- I believe it was uh, Dr. Connor that was making this point. You know, it might be in the interest of you know a Disney to be able to open a handful of select theaters where they can really control the. Uh, you know, the order of that content as it hits the masses, they can control, you know, the way that this content is impressing on the audiences that come to visit their studios. Um, Does that outweigh the ridiculous overhead costs and the additional headaches? And frankly, what is, you know, proving to be an extremely challenging business model because newsflash, Streaming is a much more consumer-friendly service. Right. I mean, uh, you know, Tom Noonan himself said it. <laughs> like, you know, who's going to pay fifteen bucks for a movie when they can pay fifteen bucks on Netflix or a Hulu month, right. a month with unlimited access access to all of this content? Um, you know, is is the prestige and the premium placement in your schedule of being able to see Parasite in theaters going to outweigh? you know, the month when it takes for you to be able to watch it for, you know, basically at that point for free because you already pay for Netflix. Um, No, I really do not think so. Uh, But one thing that I do really want to push back on, though, is that cinema is great. You know, when you go to the theater, it's not what was described as, um, you know, an immersive environment that can be achieved at home. You know, if you want to sit down and you want to go to the movie theater, it is the shared experience. But if you're telling me that kicking back in that movie chair, in that shared environment with massive audiovisual equipment that you're not going to achieve at home, period, is uh, really, you know, going to deliver that same level of experience, then that I just cannot see that argument from start to finish. I just disagree with the premise. And uh, so that being said, there's always... And I mean, always going to be a market for studio exhibition. Yeah. Um, and so, is this the solution to create more competition in the market? It's a solution. I don't think it's the solution. It is going to crowd out small studios. Um, it is going to make it more difficult. Uh, but at the same time, this is a situation where we need to see where the chips are going to fall. Yeah. Um, I've just express my viewpoint that I really don't see Disney opening up theaters. So, yeah. you know, is it going to change anything? Is it going to create a more dynamic market? You know, as we often say on the show, we're going to have to wait and see, but I'm interested yep. to see where it plays out. Well, look, we've got 30 seconds here. So my last point is basically the exhibition side of this industry is experience focused. It's what we're seeing in retail. Obviously, brick and mortar is now having to rely on how do they provide the best experience possible, not the most convenience Streaming is the e-commerce, you know, of of the film industry. So if we really want to save art house films uh, and exhibitions, I think we need to lean into uh, that side. We need to lean into... uh, um, Wow, I totally lost the word. Experience. There it is. Folks, that's it for Ratified. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. We'll see you next time.